Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. If you're here with us on Monday, you'll know that Dr. Pepper had mentioned that this is Missions Week. And so as you're walking into the gym today, you'll have passed about five different booths. The hope of this message is that you would be inspired to go and check out some of these booths for local and global mission opportunities or outreach opportunities in the world at large. I won't be explicitly talking about it in that fashion, but I think you will draw the connection as we go along. We're in a series called Wisdom for Living, Truths That Transform, and I'm going to read a couple of texts from Genesis this morning. Uh, randomly, as it were, but not so random as you'll see, Genesis 1 through 3, that is going to give us some very profound wisdom for living. So, beloved of God, listen to God's word. First, from Genesis chapter 1. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. The utterly brilliant English essayist and novelist George Orwell once asked a very good question. How was it possible, he wondered, that Hitler, who had such evil intentions, how is it possible that Hitler was able to inspire masses and masses of people to take up his diabolical agenda? It's a very good question. How indeed did Hitler manage this? Orwell suggests two observations among other things that can be said, probably a lot of other things that can be said. First of all, Hitler, he said, was able to do what he was able to do, motivating all of these peoples, because Hitler had a deep insight into the nature of the human being. More specifically, a deep insight into the motivational substructure of the human heart. And what Hitler knew was this. More than comfort, more than pleasure, more than a life of endless amusements, the human being actually desires struggle, challenge, an Everest to climb, an enemy to defeat. Or as Orwell puts it, Hitler knew that the human soul desires a dragon to slay and then wants to go out and slay it. 
And the second thing that gave Hitler such incredible power was he had an oratorical ability in a particular direction that he was able to make a common field mouse look like a dragon. And so to convince people that there were dragons all over and therefore go out and fight them. What do you think? Despite how evil Hitler was and the things he did, do you think that he was onto something about the motivational substructure of the human heart? The American novelist Walker Percy also thought that this was true about human beings. And he discloses this or manifests it in a powerful way in his novel called The Second Coming. He introduces us to a character called Will in the first chapter of his book. And Will is living the American dream, man. He's got the white picket fence. He's got the beautiful mansion. He's got the trophy wife. He has, he lives on a plantation that's four acres big. He's got lots and lots of money, beautiful cars. He even has a good group of guy friends and he's a fantastic golfer. He's in retirement and one day he's out on the golf course with his buddies. He's swinging a perfect game. And then oddly he comes to a sand trap and he falls down face forward directly in the sand trap. Not because of sunstroke, not because of a head stroke, not because he has a heart attack, but rather because Will is positively depressed. He's depleted. He feels his life is without meaning. His friends come over and pick him up, dust him off and say, you're right, Will. He lies to them and tells them he's perfectly fine. He finishes his perfect game. They go into the 19th hole and share a couple of drinks together. He jumps in his Mercedes and he starts driving home to his beautiful plantation. He drives up the driveway, curvy and gorgeous, his perfectly manicured lawn, passes his gardener who's there doing the work for him, struggling against the weeds for him. He comes into his perfectly manicured garage, clean enough to eat off the floor. And then he sits in his car with his hands on the wheel and he stares blankly forward. He opens the glove box and he grabs a handgun and he wants to end his life. And let me just say parenthetically, if any of you are in that place, please know that we are here. You have more value than you could possibly imagine and your impact in this world is more than you could ever imagine. Come to me or the Wellness Center, but we can't get to that place and Will comes to that place and he puts the gun to his head and he's about to pull the trigger and just then he hears the sound of a gunshot go off, but it's not his gun, it's another gun in his plantation. It, comes into his garage, he hears a ricochet, and it comes into his leg, searing pain in his leg, and all at once, Will concludes that he's at war. Somebody's after him. Somebody wants to kill him. There's an enemy out there. There is a dragon to slay. And unbelievably, in Walker Percy's insight, he says that Will is filled with an enthusiasm for life again. He's filled with a desire to live because he has an enemy on the outside whom he can fight. So Will flops down onto the ground. He crawls under his car with his handgun and he starts scouring his plantation for the person who's trying to kill him, his enemy. And then to his absolute chagrin and disappointment, Will discovers that it was an accident. His gardener was trying to kill a rodent. The bullet bounced off of something into the garage and through Will's leg. And he is once again filled with disappointment 
and the meaninglessness of his existence, he's depressed. What do you think? Are these novelists and essayists, are they tapping into something that's foundationally and fundamentally true about the human person? Namely, that indeed, more than simply a life of pleasure, pleasure's good. More than simply a life of comfort, comfort's great. More than simply a life of endless amusements, we human beings, we want a dragon to slay. We need to engage in struggle. We were made for a challenge. Maybe this is embodied in sport in a very profound way. That's a different sermon. But do you think this could be true? Well, I do, and I believe it because of the texts that we read from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3. Notice the language about human beings when God tells them what their vocation is. Be fruitful, increase in number on the earth. Yeah, yeah. Subdue it. Subdue it? Like gain dominion over it? Why would humans, if the creation is perfectly perfect... Why would we need to subdue anything? Why would we need to gain dominion over anything? It's a very good question. This is where it's very, very helpful when looking at a text like Genesis 1 to know the background within the ancient Near East in and around the time that this text would have been written. What was the sine qua non, as it were, the one thing that always be present in many of these narratives? It was this. Here's the, how the story went in many of these creation narratives surrounding Israel. There was a hero God, and there was a monster God. The monster God was personified as a primordial sea monster. Chaos was personified as a primordial sea monster. The hero God would then go and battle with the primordial sea monster, and in a titanic battle, it would defeat this monster, and out of its carcass, it would create the world of heavens and earth, a hospitable place for humans to live. But it would slay the sea monster. When we come to Genesis 1 verse 2, the world that we come to is what? Now the earth was formless and empty. It's that, the Hebrew there is tohu vabohu. It sounds like what it is. It's chaos. Now the earth was formless and empty. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep waters. You have a state of chaotic waters. But here's something incredibly important. First of all, there's no struggle. The God of history, the God of the Bible, the living and true God does not struggle against the forces of chaos. He simply speaks the word and they are vanquished. Well, not in this case. No, and that's important to notice. That which symbolizes chaos in Genesis chapter one is not vanquished, is not eradicated, is not completely gotten rid of, but what do we see instead? And this is reflected in Psalm 104 if you wanna see a reflection on this. What do we see instead? We see that it's bounded. We see that the chaotic forces are hedged in. God separates water from water. He separates water from land. And then he continues in a series of divisions in order to make the world hospitable to life, ending with the division between man and woman in his image, who are what? Going to participate with them in the subduing of the remaining chaotic forces. 
Ah, why? Because part of what it means to be in the image of God is indeed to take up the work of God on behalf of creation. Subduing impersonal, chaotic forces. You were made for struggle. <laughs> you were made for a challenge. You were made to defeat monsters, slay dragons. Genesis chapter two seems to confirm this, doesn't it? Although in a different way, expanding it, deepening it. Genesis chapter two says, now God took Adam and he put him in the garden of Eden and he placed him there and he told him to what? Take care of it, serve it. Translation of that text could be to guard and to serve. As a theologian like Peter Lightheart will point out, the identical language is used for the Levitical priests who are to serve and guard the temple. And you'll say, guard the temple? Guard the temple from what? Remember? Guard it from uncleanness entering into it. Guard it from sin and evil entering into it. And you'll say, my goodness, is this how we're to understand Adam and even the garden? And I'm gonna to say to you, yeah, we are. They were to guard the temple of the Garden of Eden. From what? Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the creatures that God has made. We have a mystery here because there is a force of malevolence who wants to do harm to human beings that is in the garden. What should have been Adam and Eve's response to this Creature, we are called, we, it is called a creature in the garden. Well, weren't we told before in Genesis chapter one, they are to rule over, yes, the birds of the air, yes, the fish of the sea, and also the creatures that move along the ground. What they were to do with that serpent is to kick him out of the garden or crush the serpent's head. Once again, the point here is simply this. You were created for struggle. You were created to take on a challenge. You were created to be a dragon slayer, according to scripture. And so all I wanna to say to you this morning, here's the piece of wisdom. It can be very tempting in 21st century Western culture to simply seek a life of pleasure. Isn't this the cultural story we are told? Go to school so that you can get a good job so that one day you can retire like Will at the beginning of this message and golf every day, and simply live a life without challenge and without struggle, except maybe the challenge of hitting that little ball around the golf course. And I love golf, this is nothing against golf. But you get my point. You wanna live a meaningful life? Live the life that God intended you to live since the Garden of Eden. Guess what? And the new creations, new heavens, new earth, what do we find out in Revelation 21? There will no longer be any what? Come on, somebody shut it out. No longer any sea. It's a symbol of chaos. My uncle, who's an atheist, was saying to me, you know, I don't want to go to heaven because I love sailing and there's going to be no sailing in heaven. That's not the point. There's going to be sailing in heaven. Don't worry. No, there will be no more chaos. In that day, that kind of struggle will be done. Although I believe there will be a cultural project and we will be able to struggle against certain forces of chaos, but no more moral chaos. You see, Genesis 1 gives us a picture of a 
impersonal chaos, like when floods happen, like when we don't build our dikes good enough or our dams good enough and the water breaks in into New Orleans and creates utter and absolute havoc. There is a call here for human beings to be good dike builders and good dam builders. There's a call here for human beings to be good plumbers and to fight against that chaos because you'll know the chaos that happens when a toilet hasn't been constructed well or the lines haven't been constructed well and you get an inch in water along with the contents in your bathroom floor. These are good ways to fight the chaos of the world, but then there's the moral chaos to be fought. And I just want to urge you, some of us have dragons to slay. Others may call them little field house mice, but we know that for us, patience is a dragon that needs to be, or rather impatience is the dragon that needs to be slain. (laughs) Maybe gossip is the dragon that needs to be slain in our lives. You know, some of us want to fight the ills out there in the world, and that's good, and there's a place and a time for that. But maybe the place to begin is looking into our own hearts in areas where we have places to grow, and we know the dragons that we're facing with. Here's an assignment I'd love to give you, seeing I'm running out of time, because we could talk about this for a while, and I think very profitably to talk about how this all can apply. My assignment to you is to find somebody before Friday, before Praise Chapel, to talk about what, are you, what dragon are you passionate to slay in terms of impersonal forces, which is to say to build in the cultural project. Maybe it is something like plumbing, or maybe it is dam building or dike building, or maybe it is um, to address the chaotic forces that come in with viruses and other things like that, kind of what theologians call the third evil in the world. And then also talk about maybe one thing in your life, a rather moral evil that you'd like to tackle. And as you do all of this, just remember that the ultimate dragon, that serpent of old has been cast down and has been defeated. And so as we struggle in these ways and as we work in these ways, we are once again, note well, before we're participating in the creator's work of gaining control over the chaotic forces, and now again, in the completed work of Christ, we participate in the Redeemer's work of creation. Ours is a participatory effort. And it doesn't earn us salvation, it's rather a response to the salvation we've already received. Let me pray, and then we'll sing the doxology and go. Dear Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, your empowering presence, so that indeed uh, we would be motivated deeply motivated to take on struggles that are going to make your world a better place, that are going to make human relationships more full, Lord, and that are going to bring you glory in this day. Help us, O Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you. We thank you for the work that you have accomplished on the cross, that you, Lord Jesus, have indeed been the ultimate dragon slayer, defeating sin, death, and the devil. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. Hear us singing this doxology and praise to you now and make it real to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.